I recently read a story about a football team, and uh, they were excited. It was going to be their very first game of the season, and uh, they ran out onto the field and uh, to uh, the, the cheers of the entire stadium, and uh, they ran through the tunnel. There was smoke. There was glamour. There was lights, and uh, they got there, and everybody was excited for this team and the potential they had in that season, and uh, they did their... Uh, their huddle at the very first. They sent their captains out to the middle of the field for the flip of the coin. They flip the coin. They're going to receive the ball, and uh, they all go. There's the national anthem. There's all those things that take place, and then finally the whistle blows, and they are ready, and you see them huddled up, and all at once the captains of the team usher out someone onto the field, but to their dismay, all the fans and all of the officials were wondering what was going on, and they sent just their coach out onto the field. And so the coach is there. He's about to receive the first kickoff of the season. And the referee kind of pauses. He goes to the captains of the team. and He goes, hey, I'm a little confused at what's going on here. They said, well, we're sending out the coach. So you're going to send out your coach to to play this ball game? Yes. I mean, think about it. The coach, he, he knows the playbook forward and backward. He knows offense. He knows defense. He knows everything. Matter of fact, he's got more experience from all his playing years. He played ball in high school and in college and they're like, well, what, how, how is he going to play? Well, he's, he's the guy. Matter of fact, the, the school pays him well. He's got a good income, good salary. He's the guy that is going to carry our team to victory. And so the very first kickoff goes off in the air. The coach receives it, and he is pummeled by 11 guys. And he's out for the game. Matter of fact, they usher him off. He's not even able to contribute to the team anymore. He's gone. And so what they decide is they're going to get together, they're going to talk about it, and they huddle, and they huddle, and they huddle. And the whistle blows, and the official comes over and says, guys, we cannot continue to wait for you guys to huddle. And so one delay after another, delay after game penalty, delay after game penalty, the other team just slowly, after getting the ball back from that initial kickoff, moves the ball right down the field. And they just stay in their huddle. And the official goes, I don't understand. We're like, well, why would we leave our huddle? Like, this is such a great group of guys. Like, we love each other. We care. I mean, and, and not only that, what's awesome about this is that there are some guys that they know the playbook better than we do. And they're sharing the playbook. And we're, we're just learning more about football and we're learning more about our team. And, and we really like what we're doing here. We're not really interested in being in the game. And all of a sudden, there are a few guys that begin to kind of bicker in the huddle. And they're like, well, what, we need to play the game. There's a few of them that are like, no, 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 we need to stay here. Like, we're learning more about the playbook. We're learning more about each other. This is really a great place to just stay. It's, it's safe. I mean, look what happened to the coach. He got hurt. If we go out, there's a potential that we may get hurt too. I think it's better for us just to kind of be in the group. And a few of them go, no, 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 we need to play. And so they start arguing. And then from there, they start talking about the color of the uniforms and why they wore blue jerseys and not white jerseys. And then you just see them begin to kind of have quarrels and factions. Well, they go into halftime, and they're down 55 to nothing, have not even put anyone on the field. They are a mess, right? And then they come out the next half, no cheers. No one's really excited to be there. Stands have pretty much emptied. And they send 11 guys on the field. And the official goes, well, what happened? What happened at halftime? Like, what's the change of heart? Well, there's just something that came over us at half. I I don't know what it was, but it it came over us, and we felt the power and the urge to go and to play, that we needed to be in the game, that the victory is found when you play in a game. Now, what's interesting is, like, you you know this story is absolutely ridiculous. Some of you even beg the question, how long did it take you to come up with that, right? (laughs) Not very long. Why? Because it's the picture 
of what you call the church. There's a lot of people who think that it's really the responsibility of the leadership to do all the tasks. Let's send him out. He gets paid well. He's, that's the reason he's the pastor. There's others of us that we, we really like our little holy huddle. Like, we like what's happening in our journey group, and we, we really don't really care to see anybody else to, to benefit from what God is doing around the world. We just kind of like it. We're comfortable. We don't really want to do too much, and, and we kind of like it there. There's others of us that we've been a part of places, and, and may have even happened here, that we hear factions and quarrels and little comments made that ultimately bring division. And it's over silly stuff about things that you might be called to do or the chairs that you sit in or all these different things. But ultimately, it just creates tension and division. That was the picture of people without the gospel. And you go, well, no, 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 that's actually the picture of people with the gospel. And you're right. But it's only when their creed is different than their function. So last week, we talked to you about this series called Ecclesia. And Ecclesia in the Greek literally means the called out ones. It's mentioned 114 times in your New Testament. 90 of those three times, it refers to the local church. It means the people in uh, Galatia or the people in Thessalonica, or the people that were in Ephesus, or in Corinth. It's referred to groups of people who have come together to be the church, the called out ones. And so last week, we talked about what it looked like to have a creed, like what is the church? And for so many of us, like it, we've always been confused. I remember when we first started at Stone Point, there were so many people that were like, you mean to tell me that, like the church is more than a building? And that was really a question. There's some of you that since coming to Stone Point, you've realized like, oh, we don't go to church. Like, church isn't the service we do. Church isn't the building we go to. Church is the people. It's the people called out of darkness into the wonderful light. But for so many years, many of us have thought, oh, we go to church. It's the place with the steeple and the nice landscape. Until you came here, you always thought that was the reality, right? <laughs> you, you thought, okay, it's the service we attend. It's the functions that we have. It's the traditions that we see. We think, oh, it's a guy... Uh, it's the guy that recites something in liturgy, and then we repeat it. It's the hymns that we sing. And we thought that it was the traditions that we had. And ultimately, we realized that last week that it is the people called out of darkness into the wonderful light. And the church is actually not a building. It's not a service. It's not a set of traditions, but it's the people of God. And ultimately, the buildings, the services, and the traditions are nowhere found in the Scripture. Those are all things that we have formulated in our mind and in our hearts over time through men and traditions. And ultimately, they're, they're not real biblical. And so it's simply a people. It's a people who now knows that we were once in sin, once in not only our sin, but we crave the desires of the flesh. And because of our conversion, we've been called out of those things into a new life with Christ. And because we now have a new life with Christ, we also know that we're not just called out of something, but we're called back into something, and that's community. That we're to care and to love one another. That we're to hold each other accountable, to shepherd and challenge one another, to sharpen each other. And when we do that, we do it as a pillar of truth. So meaning, the whole purpose, the creed of the church is a people of God called out of darkness to be a pillar of truth for the world to see. What's interesting is that there's not too much pressure to be a pillar. Like, you're not the foundation. It's not all going to crumble because you don't hold up your side of the pillar. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, our porch may lean because you don't do your part, but the whole thing's not going to crumble. Why? Because Christ is the foundation. And he told Peter, he says, I'm going to build my church, and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the great thing is, is that the church is going to flourish regardless if we hold up our end of the pillar. 
But it functions best when a people called out of darkness into wonderful light hold up the pillar of truth. The pillar of truth is the foundational principles of God's word declared to his people. And so we see that that's the creed. But the question is, is okay, you've got the creed, a people of God as a pillar of truth. What's our role? Like, how do we function? And what is the job? And, and so what you see in Acts chapter 2 is the very first church in Jerusalem being born. And what's interesting is, is that they, they didn't really have function. They didn't know exactly what it was they were supposed to do. They didn't have an outline. They didn't have a playbook. They didn't even have a coach. What they had was is the presence of the Holy Spirit that fell on them. And so we see that as a result of the Holy Spirit coming down on this church in Jerusalem, and ultimately 12 apostles, 11 really, that were there, you see that this movement begins called the way. The people that follow Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah, this one who has been dead, was buried, borrowed the tomb for three days, now is resurrected, and now is ascended. And upon his ascension, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And you see that happen in Acts chapter 2. But the question is, what did it cause them to do? It caused them to function in the way that most of us would dream the church to function. And so if you'll look with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, I'm going to show you what the functions of that New Testament church were. In verse 37, it says, when the people heard this, well, what did they hear? What they heard was the first sermon preached to the church in Jerusalem. Peter stands up, a guy who had a foot-shaped mouth, begins to say something. And for the very first time in his life, he says, he says something that actually makes sense. Every other time he speaks, Jesus is like, hey, get behind me, Satan, okay? Like he never has the right words. He's always fumbling around. He's always pointing things out that shouldn't be pointed out. And Jesus is like, hey, enough. But then the Holy Spirit comes on him. And it's amazing to see the transformation. He begins to preach. He gives this sermon. And it says that people were cut to the heart. And said Peter to the other apostles, Brothers, what, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. He goes, there's this message, and the message is declared to you through the Holy Spirit, and he says, what you need to do is repent, and you need to come and be baptized. Now, as those words go out, verse 40 says, with many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He preaches the good news to them, the good news in which he didn't know until the Holy Spirit fell on him. I mean, he's been huddled in a room with a, a bunch of other guys wondering what Jesus meant when he says, it's best that I go and a more suitable helper comes for you. It's, it's something that he now has experienced. He begins to warn them. He pleads, hey, save yourselves from this generation. Sound familiar? Verse 41, it says, and those who accept his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Like, you think our baptism services of 34 are long? Can you imagine 3,000? Like, I have an idea of what that looked like a hundred at a time. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <laughs> and even still, that service probably takes several hours, right? But what a cool thing to see 3,000 people come to know Jesus because of the result of a message being proclaimed. And then in 42, it says, um, or 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and wonders 
at the signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possession to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so you just see this picture and what's interesting is if you walk this out, you see that there are some functions that the church ought to be taking part in often. Now, this is a descriptive passage. It's not prescriptive. It's not something you have to do. But ultimately, as you look at this and how it flourished, you would go, it would make sense that the church would be built around some similar principles. And so the question is, what are they? Well, Rick Warren came up with a, a book about two decades ago called The Purpose-Driven Church. Now, before, um, you know, before you came to know Rick Warren, that was what he wrote. But you then heard all this book. It was called The Purpose Driven Life. And so it was talking about living for purpose. But before then, he said, this is what it looks like to have a purpose-driven church. It was basically built on five things. It was built on uh, evangelism, fellowship. It was built on worship. Um, it was built on, um, I said, evangelism, fellowship, worship, um, discipleship and one other. Y'all can go look it up, okay? But it was the five functions of the church, okay? And those five things were things that every church should be doing, and he was basically calling churches to uh, more purpose. But what's interesting is, is I think you can make the case for, for ten of them. I've kind of grouped them together in a couple of ways to where we have nine of them, and I'm not going to try to get through all nine today, but I want you just to see them. So I'm going to list them for you real quickly. You should have life change, you should have witnessing. You should have teaching the word. Uh, you should have fellowship and care. You should have uh, worship, prayer. Uh, you should have multiplication. And then you should have the ordinance of the church where you're grouped together, and that's the Lord's Supper, and that's baptism. Now, I want you just to see why these things are important and ultimately why they're the function of the church. So what I'm saying is, is this. Many of our churches that we have been a part of, and maybe you have been a part of your life, you have a great creed, because what happened was, is two decades ago, Rick Warren, when he called people to a purpose-driven church, they essentially said, we're going to come up with a reason why we exist, and ultimately why we function, and they believe that they are the people of God, and that they should be a pillar of truth, and they based it off of a statement they made, but the question is, is did churches really understand what their creed and their function is and that the two are paired together? But what's happened over time is we've separated. We have great creed and we have very little function. So we say we believe that this should be happening in the church, but we never measure as to whether or not it's happening. We say that these are things that are really important within the church, but we find ourselves having quarrels and factions and dissensions. We find ourselves sending out the coach by himself. We find ourselves in holy huddles. We find ourselves looking and bickering and arguing about minutiae when ultimately we should be proclaiming the message of truth in the way that God's designed us to be and function as the people of God and the pillar of truth, the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia. And so the very first one that I, I see is um, that I want to discuss is that they were filled with awe and wonder at the many signs that were being performed among them. What it basically is showing you is that there was tremendous life change. Like there were people who were being converted. And we talked last week what it looked like to be converted, that you were called out of sin, called out of darkness. But the question is, why is life change important? 
The one thing that I've said from the very beginning, and people ask me all the time, Brandon, how are you guys growing? I've talked to church planter after church planter, and they want to replicate many of the things that have happened here. And I'm like, you cannot replicate what's happened here. You can, you can take and put our purpose statement, connect to God, others, and service in the world. You can put that on your website. You can take our essential beliefs and put it on your website. And there have been some church plants that have done that. But ultimately, I said, it's not the creed, it's the function. And if you do not have life change, if you do not have men who were once the stiff-necked, rebellious, hard-hearted person that everybody knew in the community, who's now walking in humility and love and respect, towards other people because of Christ converting his heart, then you don't have life change. If you don't have the woman who was a single mother and three kids and has been with many people, but now is walking in truth in light of the gospel and is getting her life together, you don't have life change. So life change is the, the part that God is bringing people alive and you're filled with awe and wonder. There have been many people over the course of the last five and a half years that go, I cannot believe that so-and-so came to church. And I'm like, well, it's better than that. He didn't just come to church. God has taken his life and transformed it. And the reason that the church primarily grows is because of life change. You see that the called out ones, once in darkness, and it was apparent, have now been walking in a light. It is the picture of 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Look at it. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we were once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Do you see that? So old is gone, darkness into light. Then look what happens. All of this is from who? God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Do you see what this says? It goes, I take a man and I convert his heart. I reconcile him to God through Jesus and his death, his burial, his resurrection. But he, goes, he doesn't leave it there. He goes, I take that life and I use it to bring all and wonder and glory to God as a minister of reconciliation. See, God does not save us or free us from bondage, sin, slavery, and darkness simply for us to sit in our seats. He saves us so that we can share our story so that other people who are far from God can be reconciled to God through Jesus. So we have something to share. And when is it shared most? When God has done an awestruck, glorious work in our hearts. When people recognize, I was once stubborn, rebellious, in sin, in darkness, confused, not walking in light, and now all I desire to do is walk in truth and light and love towards the gospel. It's awe-striking. So therefore, as ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus took on our sin, and he imputed to us righteousness, which means transferred. He takes our darkness and gives us his light. He takes our sin, and he gives us what? Grace and peace and love. And it is an all striking thing to see lives converted and i tell you that there are time and time and time again that i'll do ministry and rub shoulders alongside of a man or a woman here at stone point and i am awestruck 
because I know their story. I know where they came from. I know how rebellious and hard-hearted and stiff-necked. I know how broken they were. But they've left the sinful patterns, and they've trusted in a God who can heal them and fully restore them. It's regeneration at work, and that's all striking. See, we don't just have life change, but what do we do? From life change, we begin to witness. And so what did what did Peter do? He pleaded with them. He warned them. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And you go, oh, I, I bet I know exactly what Peter meant. It's like that guy standing on the street corner, and, and he's got his megaphone, and he's got his sign, and it says, turn or burn, baby, turn or burn. And as you walk by as a devoted Christian, he's going, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And in that moment, even you cringe, because he's witnessing. No, 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 no. What is witnessing? Witnessing is taking a wonder, a sign, a miracle in your life of God transforming your heart, calling you out of darkness, and allowing you to share that testimony with other people. And we share that vibrantly because we know that we're called to do that. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before the Spirit descended upon Peter and the other apostles, what was promised to them? Jesus said it. His last words, he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he goes, you are the ones that go and proclaim the message. And the question is, is what do you and I share? Do we share that people need to turn from their sin and destructive patterns because they're going to hell? Or do we share that, listen, you need to know the God of grace and love that can restore the broken, who can give peace to a life of chaos, who can calm the storm. That's what we need. And here's what's interesting. The church has done a far greater job of letting people know what they're against rather than what they're for. Think about that. How many times we've stood on the street corner and we've proclaimed a message, but we've never introduced them to the hope and the healing that God can fully restore. And so we shame them in their guilt, forgetting how far we once were from God's grace. And we forget to tell them the story that lives can be changed when the Spirit comes upon them. The question, though, is this, is as we witness, how far should we go? Like, that's the question that many of us ask. Like, Brandon, okay, I get it. We should go and share the gospel, but really, should I go? And am I doing more harm than good than going when we have so many challenges here? And it seems to be one of the questions that oftentimes comes up in the church. It's one of those holy huddle moments if we're not careful. And the reason why is because we go, we have so many needs of poverty here, even in our community. And if you realize that we don't live in Highland Park, we lived where people um, have no vehicles. We live in a place where many of their kids don't have lunch and that the government and the school assist them with that. We live in a place where there is low socioeconomic status. We are one of the poorest cities and ultimately one of the poorest counties across really the state of Texas. Our, our school district is, is considered social economically disadvantaged. And so we, we're tending oftentimes to look and go, hey, we have so many needs here, why should we go there? And that's a valid question because we do have needs to meet here. But let me ask you a question. How do you figure that in your mind? Like, who deserves a witness? Is it just Jerusalem? Because I think Jesus knew that these apostles who were going to be sent out for him, they had no problem staying in the hub of the city of Jerusalem. They had no problem being there. But 
Then he says, but I want you to go not just to Jerusalem, but to what? Judea. Then they go, okay, Judea, that's not too far. And then to Samaria. And for the Jew, that would have been like for us going to the lowest, poorest place on earth in a place where we really didn't even like the people. It's really the picture of Jonah and Nineveh. The reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he didn't really want the people of Nineveh to experience the forgiveness of God. He didn't believe they were worthy of it. They were so wicked, so evil that Jonah said, no, I am not going to go for you. And so he ran from God. Samaria was a place where most Jerusalem Christians would not want to go. They had no problem with Jerusalem and Judea, but Samaria, I don't really know. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth, question that you have to ask is, is that really what Jesus is commanding us to do, that, that we would be a witness everywhere? And the answer is yes. Yes. And so maybe you go, well, I'm struggling at how, like, I only have a certain amount of finances, and how do you, how do you kind of, you know, figure out how I'm going to go? Like, do I send it all to the world and not do anything here? Do I spend it all here and not do anything around the world? Well, I think there's a, a really good balance right there that you would use the resources that God has given you to bless all those places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But what's interesting is, is oftentimes we'll find one that we really draw near to that really, in a sense, stirs our heart's affections, and we just kind of camp there. And so the reality is, is that over the course of time, I've had several people in just the last five and a half years at Stone Point go, listen, if you really think that when I come here that I'm going to go on a mission trip to Africa, you're wrong. I'm like, well, that's really not my call. That's the Lord's. But ultimately, you need to understand what the way and the reality is as the church, the people of God. With the story of life change, called to witness, here's the reality. The reality is that Americans will hear the gospel time and time again. Probably close to 90 to 100 times this year alone for the average American. People, though, that don't necessarily hear the name of Jesus are in other places like Mexico and Canada. They, they know who Jesus is, but not all of them know how to follow him. But there are places in India, Sudan, Africa, Asia, across the world. But the reality is if you went to their tribe and you said, is Jesus there? They would say, I don't know him. He may be in the village down the road. And they don't know Jesus. They don't know the gospel. And the reality is, uh, un unfortunately, whether you agree with it or not, because we're not God, is the reality is if they don't hear the name of Jesus and have a chance to respond, they actually perish forever apart from a holy God. And you go, well, that's not very loving and just of a holy God. If God loves them very much and they've never heard of his name, it doesn't seem fair that he would do that. And let me explain something. You have no problem with it in the Old Testament. Because God only called one people, and that was the people of Israel. His elect. And what's interesting is, is the Philistines, you had no problem with the big old giant getting hit in the forehead and dying and David cutting his head off. You're like, oh, awesome, what a God story. But when it comes to you and your role as the church, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God being displayed in your life, you go, surely that's not my role. And the answer is, is this, he is the head and we are the body. And he is depending on the body to function in a way that every name, people, tribe, tongue, lazy, ethnicity, poor, rich, all have a chance to hear the gospel. And there will be no one else that fulfills that with the exception of the church. And so if you embrace the idea, well, you know what, that's not really my job. I think, I think somebody else should do it, whether it be in your, in your neighborhood, whether it be in your own family, whether it be in our state or county or across the world, there's two reasons you need to be careful. Number one is that if you don't share, no one else will. 
And number two, if you're expecting me to share, you are actually robbing God of the blessing he wants to pour out in your life. And you're transferring that to me. And so all the time people go, hey, Brand, I, I really would like you to meet with this person. And I'm like, what do you mean you want me to meet with them? Well, there's a co-worker. They have a lot of questions about God and the gospel. We've been kind of talking over the last few months, but I really like you to share just the story of faith with them. And so this happened just this last week, and I texted back, and I said, I have already equipped you with all the tools that you need. I will come and sit with you, but I will not share the gospel in a place where God has equipped you to share it. I cannot share the gospel with your friends, with your children. I cannot share the gospel with all your coworkers. I, why? Because God's calling me to share in my own places. And the, the function of the body is when we all witness in the place that God has put us. You have a story to share. If you have come out of darkness into the wonderful light of Jesus Christ, you have an awestruck transformation that is supernatural. He's taken natural man dead in his sin, and he has given him new life. He's taken someone who's lame and blind and made them to walk and see, and you should share that story. And if you don't share it, there's the potential that no one else will. And you go, well, Brand, that seems like a lot on me. It seems like a lot for the church to be the fulfillment of God's kingdom throughout the earth. Like we would share the message of the gospel. And let me just say, yes, there is an obligation for us to share because we are the body of Christ. That means that all authority between heaven and earth has been given and transferred to us from Jesus to us because the Holy Spirit lives in us to share. But let me just tell you something. You're not God and you can't save a person. So you don't have to feel the weight of that. So what is our task? Well, Paul writes to the church in Corinth in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, and he, he asks the question, he goes, Hey, what then is Apollos, and what then is Paul? Like, what, what are these? And then he says, we are servants through whom you've believed as the Lord assigned to each. And then Paul says, I planted, and then Apollos came, and, and, and he watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Do you see the language there? We're God's field, we're God's building. We are his laborers. We co-labor together for the gospel. But the question is, as we witness, we share our story, is it our pressure to make sure that our uncle comes to know Jesus? Is it... Is it the pressure on us that our co-worker comes to know Jesus? And the answer is no, but we have to be faithful to one or two things. One of them is that we plant or we water. Now think about this. When the farmer goes out, he's going to work vigorously, and he is going to plow, and he's going to till, and he's going to remove rocks and hard places. He's looking for fertile ground to throw seed on. What's interesting is, is in this, Paul doesn't even tell us that that's our job. Our job is not even to prepare, though it is the farmer's job. And so God is preparing a fresh place for us to throw seed on. Sometimes we throw seed and birds come along and snatch it away. Sometimes we throw seed and, and weeds grow up. Sometimes we throw seed and the, the, hard, it, the ground is hard and it's not fertile. But sometimes we throw seeds and it, it lands right in soft, moist soil. Now think about the farmer. The, the farmer, when he throws seeds, what, what really is his responsibility after that? 
I mean, in some case, in some cases where there's irrigation and there's there's proper um, drainage and things like that, lakes, etc., they can water their fields. But in most cases, farmers are dependent upon God on what? Watering. But I'll tell you, every farmer that lays his head down at night, do you know what he's done? He's toiled, he's labored, and he not, has not done so in vain. But he cannot produce the process of photosynthesis. Matter of fact, he can't really wrap his head around it. Like, how in the world does God take that seedling and make it grow? And then how does that grow and then ultimately produce fruit? How does, it, how does that harvest come about? Listen, it has little to do with the farmer and a lot to do with God. The fact that he's prepared everything just right. And, and here's the obligation of the farmer. Here it is. Ready? Plant the seed. That is our job as the church. We plant and we water. And outside of that, we allow God to do his work. It's not your responsibility to pick and choose who gets the gospel. It's not your responsibility to save a person when you share the gospel. But it is our responsibility to share. And it's our responsibility to scatter well, praying, God, that it would land on fertile soil and that you would cause growth that brings an awestruck wonder, that there would be a harvest of righteousness. That's what witnessing is. Understand? And not only did they see that, they, they saw life change and they shared the gospel together, they witnessed, but then from there, what do you do? You teach the word. Now, this is a struggle for many of us because uh, teaching the word sounds really good until we have to do um, something with that word, maybe in our life. But what does the word do? It does several things. Listen, it gives guidance. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It provides comfort. Isaiah 40, 1 through 2. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. And it goes on and it says a little bit more. But it also gives assurance and peace. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask, and God will give it generously without finding fault. Like God wants you to have wisdom, and that wisdom brings about peace and understanding. It also, God uh, gives, he gives wisdom and, and maturity. But it's for you. You continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it and how your childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Like, it's, it's good not only for giving guidance and comfort, assurance and peace, but also wisdom and maturity. And it declares the salvation to mankind. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So you look and you go, okay, I get it. The, the word is powerful. No, no, no. Let me explain how powerful the word is. Do you understand what God has accomplished through the word? I'm just going to give you a fragment of what he's accomplished through the word. The universe was created by the word. Hebrews eleven three, 3, Colossians 1. God revealed himself through the word. Amazing thing. John 1. Um, God stilled the storms through his word. We love that part about God. God, you could calm the storms. Mark 4, 39. Demons flee at his word. Mark 1, 25. The dead are raised to life by the power of his word. 
John 11, 43, 44. Blind see because of his word. Luke 18, 42. The entire universe was not only created by God because of his word, but it responds to God because of his word. Isaiah 40, 25 to 26. Sins are forgiven because of his word. Mark 2, 5. John 5. The paralytic. Get up. I say your sins are forgiven. The word is powerful. So the question is, is this, why in the world would we go to a church where they don't proclaim the message of his word? That's foolishness. And more than that, why would you leave ticked off because of something you heard from his word? Because word brings life and power and peace. And listen to me, there are, there are a lot of things in the Bible that I don't like. There are a lot of things that I don't understand. And there are a lot of things that I struggle to apply to my life. But ultimately, I know that my only hope for being converted to Christ by the likes of the gospel is through his word. And so may we apply that richly. And the last thing I want you to see, and then we'll cover the rest of them next week, is just fellowship and care. Like that should be something as a function in the church, fellowship and care. And the question is, is what does fellowship and care look like? And I think this right here is probably the struggle that most of us have seen in our churches locally, is fellowship and care. Yeah, we say that we care for one another. Yes, we say that we're going to promote fellowship. But for whatever reason, it seems that we are in a holy huddle or we argue and bicker and we fight about color uniforms and chairs and pews and minutia. And so what is it? Well, let me explain Fellowship and care is only brought forth best when you understand these three things quickly. We share in God's spirit. Think about that. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you are a part of his church, the body of Christ, the ecclesia, the call that ones, we share in his spirit. Think about that. And we share his spirit. We partake of the gospel together. That means that we are partakers of the divine blessing of Jesus through the blood of Christ. We break bread. We participate in the body and the brokenness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. We share in the sufferings of the gospel together. Meaning we, we understand what Jesus' power and his resurrection were. That we share in his sufferings. That we become like him in his death. That's the point of baptism, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks that we are dead and then brought back to life. We share in the suffering of the gospel. So get this, if God's spirit lives in you, we understand the gospel brings us together and we share in the sufferings of Christ, why is it that we cause such grief and suffering among our own lives? It's because we have forgotten that we are the church, the called out ones. And so what is God calling us to? Real quickly, I'm just getting give. He says, give to one another. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So we participate and we give to one another. We serve alongside of each other. 3 John 1, 8, therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And so if we serve alongside of each other, how should we serve? We should serve in unity through the bond of peace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13, we should serve together not only in unity but with different gifts, knowing that all of us are a part of his body. Like, yeah, you go, well, I'm not a mouth. I, 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 I'm a toe, and I like to be hidden. That's great. We need toes. We need ears. We need eyes. We occasionally, especially when it comes to those donuts, we need noses. We need different gifts, and you and I need to know that we don't have to fight to be someone within the church. That God has uniquely woven and designed you to function properly together, that we all 
we all have parts that are needed. There's no one that's superior and one that's inferior. There's no one that's inferior and one that's superior. We can't lord our task over someone else. Oh, yeah, I get to be a journey group leader. Ultimately, all of our roles are a part of God's design and function. And so we serve alongside of each other. We don't just serve alongside of each other, though. We should serve one another. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Wow, that's a new one. Oh, I thought we were to serve just people. No, we're to serve one another in love and hospitality. So we should greet one another. 1 Corinthians 16.20, We're hospitable to one another. We receive each other, Romans 15, 7. We wait on one another. That means even before we dine, we wait. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. We honor each other, Romans 12, 10. Like we should serve. It should be a pleasure to serve. It should be a pleasure to love one another. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you know why the world's so confused? It's because churches seem to hate each other. People who possess his spirit and participate in the gospel and the sufferings of Christ can't get along. Oh, what a detriment to his body. Oh, what a detriment to his kingdom. Oh, how disappointed he must be when we can't love and serve one another. So we encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we instruct one another. Not We instruct each other because we agree with what the scriptures present to us. Not because we instruct each other or challenge one another because it's going to be easy. We do it out of obedience, knowing that we should, what? In, instruct and build up one another. We confess to one another. James chapter 5, verse 16. We confess our sins one to another. We pray for one another that we may be healed. For, for the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. We're merciful to each other. Why? Because God has been merciful to us. It means that we forgive in the body. Why? Because Christ forgave us, Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has complained against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must also forgive. Now the question is, is this, so I have a complaint against somebody, I'm just going to leave. That seems to be the trend in American churches, particularly here in the Bible Belt. No, it says talk about it and ultimately find a way to reconcile yourself to your brother and find a way to forgive. Now if they won't hear it, you take a couple other along with you and ultimately you involve church leadership, and they refuse to repent, then that's a whole other thing called church discipline, which we'll talk about in coming weeks. The bottom line, our goal is to forgive because Christ has forgiven me. Do you understand? Listen to me. If you think the church is some casual thing that you do on a Sunday where you hear a message, sing a few songs, ultimately complain about the temperature and how long the sermon is, then I think you've missed the picture of the church. I think the gospel is not readily sitting in your heart. And the reason why that I think you have so many of these fragments, dissensions, quarrels, and lack of understanding of the church is because of Matthew 7. There are many in the church that have not been set free of their sin. They still walk in darkness, but they claim that they know the light. So can I just close by, by telling you a story, kind of like the church, our function? Like we know our creed. Our function are, are these things. So here's the story. A, f- a story of four young lads by the name of Tom, Dick, Harry, and Joe. Their full names are, in fact, as such. Tom somebody, Dick everybody, Harry anybody, and Joe nobody. Now, together they were the best of friends, but I must confess, when they came to a test, they weren't very good. You see, whenever they were given a job, they all began to fight because this is how it always went. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it. 
But anyone could have done it, but in the end, nobody always ended up with the task. When nobody did it, somebody was angry because it was everybody's job, but everybody thought that somebody would do it instead. Now, nobody realized that nobody would do it, so consequently, everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done in the first place. When there was a job to do, a need to be filled, or someone of leadership, one name was always given. Someone else. Everybody knew that someone else was the largest giver of time and money. And so when there was a financial need, everybody, anybody, and somebody always assumed that someone else would make up the difference. But now someone else is gone. He died. And the boys all wonder what they'll do. No longer can they utter the words, let someone else do it. If it's going to be done, one of them will have to do it. And guess most of the time it will be nobody. I kind of rephrased that a little bit, kind of leave you with the truth for the church. Somebody named Jesus died for everybody. And when you trust him with your life, you became a part of his body, right? So that you'd share your message with anybody so that nobody would have to perish. Consequently, we asked our members from day one to be a part of the covenant promise with us, the church. You may not agree with the covenant. You may not like that. There's no prohibition against it. The bottom line is you signed it. You said, I'm not going to let everybody else do a job that anybody can do. And you said, I'm going to commit to, I'm going to commit to getting uh, in a, have a personal relationship with Jesus, following believers' baptism. I'm going to commit to getting in a group, a journey group in which I do life together with other people. I'm going to serve in one place for the function of his body, doing what God's called me to do. And I'm going to do that so that the world would know. What's interesting is, as I look at this in five and a half years, I find myself relating our church more and more to this people who covenanted in membership with us and our body who said, I will fulfill the role that God's called me to. And every time you ask them, they go, well, isn't someone else going to do it? When it's a job that anybody could do. And I don't say that to guilt you. I say that to let you understand that the church is the only organization in the world that's ever been created for the benefit of its non-members. And unless all parts do their function like God's called us to do, we cannot adequately be called the church that God's called us to. And I'll tell you one thing that is true. Our creed has always been consistent, and it's always been proclaimed. But it means nothing to have a creed if you don't function like the creed's meant to. And so my prayer is as we leave that we would just say, God, what are you calling me to for the church? Understanding it's not a building, it's not things that we have, it's things that you want us to participate in so that people may hear the truth of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and around the world. So may you leave today knowing God's called us to be a part, the called out ones, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And he's given us power and authority to make sure that every name around the world hears the gospel, that they understand the life change, the awestruck beauty of life change. They understand witnessing. and They understand the idea of fellowship and care and the teaching of his word. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for today. I pray that you would move us out of here today 
inspired by your word and not by a message. I pray, God, there would be no guilt, there would be no um, struggle that your spirit doesn't put on our lives. God, the reality is, is that we are the church and we have to function the way you've called us to so that people hear the message. And so I pray, Lord, that you would spur us on towards love and good deeds, that you would help us to be the body that cares for each other in a way that's healthy. And ultimately, that we're in the game and not in our own little huddle. God, help us to be the called out ones, functioning the way that our creed says we should. In Jesus' name, amen.